This is from the chapter Christ-like life of Lahiri Mahashaya. Up till this point, Yoganandaji was talking about how Lahiri Mahashaya gave Kriya initiation to people of all faiths, all religions, all different levels of understanding. It wasn't something that was reserved for a few chosen few. Especially at that time, this is the 1800s, where uh, Lahiri Mahashaya was a high caste Brahmin, which mattered a lot in those days. But for him, none of that mattered at all, especially when you have the experience of the divine. All these little borders and all these little separations and all these little names and boxes that we somehow have decided are worthwhile in our lives, they just all completely disappear. However, when Lahiri Mahashaya did give Kriya initiation and Diksha to people of different faiths, he expected them and required them to still fulfill the disciplines of each of their faiths to ensure that just because now I have this one thing doesn't mean that I do not then maintain a disciplined daily life of worshipful attitude towards God, towards Divine Mother. And that is what we try to do ourselves in our daily lives. The path that we follow, each of us, whatever your path may be, is all about maintaining and creating discipline. Because the mind is so easily drawn into the world, it's so easily confused, so easily fearful, so easily loses the understanding that there is no other reality but God. That if we don't create some form of a discipline, it takes a very, very long time to convince the mind otherwise. So every day, as much as we can, think about, is there a discipline to my life? Is there a certain sadhana that I practice? Is there a way that I go about my daily lives that affirms this reality, not just mentally? Because, you know, mentally doesn't do much. We know a lot of things mentally, but doesn't mean we can actually build on those mental concepts. So what am I doing that's breaking every day the walls that I have built around me over lifetimes until eventually I get to that point that God alone exists? From here, we continue. With wise discernment, the Guru guided his followers into the paths of bhakti, karma, jnana or raja yogas according to each man's natural inclinations, sorry, tendencies. The master, who was slow to give his permission to devotees, wishing to enter the formal path of monkhood, always cautioned them to first reflect well on the austerities of the monastic life. So Lahiri Masha wasn't big on... You know, when I first read the autobiography and when I first read Yogananda's life and I said, oh, he's a monk or, you know, he... And naturally, that's how we perceive the life. And we said, that's what I want and I want to give my life entirely to God in this very formal way. And I don't think I fully <laughs> contemplated the austerity. Thankfully, in Ananda, the level of austerity is already a little, <laughs> little more, more at your own pace. Yeah. You know, it's not... No, there's no organizationally imposed austerity. However, there are, you know, just natural things that one is expected to do if you take a formal vow, if you're mm -hmm. taking a formal vow of renunciation. And 
I didn't fully. I just, you know, in the moment, you get excited. You read these things. Oh, this Baba here and this Swami there, and you just assume that that's what I need to be as well. That's how I need to express the spiritual path. And I assumed the same. <laughs> and you know, you come upon it, and hey, you there, you're enjoying a lot of aspects of it, but you start to realize that you're not truly, you're not being true to your vow at all. <laughs> you don't quite know what that decision truly means because you're just in it because that's what you think the world expects of you now that you're spiritual that's what you've created as an expectation because you read it somewhere that same mental concept of the spiritual path and thankfully master was smart enough to know that shurjo is not going to be able to do so well so <laughs> you know he sent me narayani and both of us were able to redirect our lives in a way that was very suitable to the lessons we truly had to learn and of course even within our marriage we do have a monastic vow but this monastic vow is much more um in tune with who we are so each of us need to think about especially when we get a little overzealous about the spiritual path are we even aware of the austerities that are required and of course for lahari mahashaya this wasn't a light decision i took this decision a little lightly or at least just not knowing there could be another way to do this and then i failed at many such you know every time i knew i had to break through something i chose not to i chose i'll just stay who i am <laughs> you know it's not a big deal but I, then mm-hmm. you know that didn't work for me either i was thinking about this word to first reflect and i was thinking this is actually something that each one of us should do before we commit to something mm-hmm. whether it is a relationship whether it is a job whether it is a spiritual path whether it is there is a discipline involved and and really be very self honest why do i want to join this what i'm willing to commit myself and an introspect and go through the intention why do i want to do that this i remember when swami kriyananda created for the first time the naya swami order is a monastic order where shurjo anaya and many others within ananda are part of and that was the first time he was going to give the monastic vows to whether those single who wanted to take the brahmachari or brahmacharini vows for the first time those householders and the complete renunciation and i remember that i had to go through a very intense week because i needed to go within me and even though i was already giving my life to god already knew i wasn't interested in anything else my commitment was so clear so deep so like well established i didn't want anything else except this yet i didn't know if i was ready to take this step and i remember that swami ji wrote to several people Uh, about taking the brahmachari vows and someone told me he also wants for you to take it but he didn't write to me directly 
So that week, I really meditated deeply. I cried. I went <laughs> through all the scenarios, what it could, me, could mean for me if I take this vow, but then I break it. And I mean, all possible scenarios until I became ready with the understanding, like whether I fail or not in the future, what matters to me is what I want to do right now and what I'm willing to commit no matter what. And when I came to, you know, my senses and that strength and that courage and, you know, I was ready to face myself and work with my ego at a level that I never thought I had to, then I wrote an email to Swami Kriyananda, you know, long email just explaining him, you know, all what I went through this week. And I heard you were, wanted to give me the Brahmacharya <coughs> vows, but I didn't. You know, I really introspected in a way that I became ready for it. And I think, and then, of course, afterwards, Swami Kriyananda replied back to me just with one line, I always count on you as a brahmacharini. <laughs> then that's all to my long email. But it was important for me to reflect at that level and just to face my greatest fears and to recognize that there would be inner work involved. And was I ready? to embrace that. And I think what Lahiri Mahashaya here advises even till this day to each one of us, if you want to take the vow of discipleship, the vow of Kriya, or any vow or any commitment, just first reflect and make sure that once you step into it, you are going to give yourself 100%. Otherwise, it will work. I didn't do any of that inner reflection at all. I just called <laughs> I my did. mom and I said, Ma, I'm going to become a brahmachari. I hope that's okay. But, you know, when you get to take a vow like this and you do perhaps at some point need to break that vow, it's a, it becomes a very serious moment yeah. in your life. And the same happened with Narayani and me. And I remember when Swamiji finally said it will be good for us to be together. You know this story, but he immediately said, when are you both getting married? And the idea being, if you're about to take the energy that you've built into this vow, into this particular way of life, are you immediately going to put it into another vow of commitment or are you just going to break this and just Go let that energy yeah, just let that energy just dissipate? And that's the idea behind the growth that we're seeking, not so much about breaking the vows or, oh, I chose this and I'm not able to do because I chose it at a time where I did not know whether at that moment I thought I would absolutely do this. This is how I want to live my life. And it was very true, but I didn't know what karmas lay before me. But it was just so wonderful of Swamiji to intuitively ask that of us. Take whatever you've gained in this vow of commitment immediately put it into another vow of another commitment, a deeper commitment perhaps, where the energy continues and doesn't dissipate in the process. And the moment we got married, then his next question, question was, when are you taking the Tyagi vows? You know, it's just like, don't think that this just because now you've changed the way that you're seeking God, that the level of what is expected of you will change as well. In fact, now is the time for you to 
raise that energy. So whatever your choices in life are, and as Narayani said beautifully, any commitment you make, not even just to the spiritual path, just tune into it a little bit and see what's going to happen. And if you are at a moment where you have to shift your commitments, see what you're shifting them towards. Or are you just, ah, now I don't, ah, I'm free. Now I don't have to worry about anything. Now, now I can just let my energy drop. Now I can do whatever I want. And that's something that a lot yeah, of like people... Now I have the title. Or now I'm wearing the clothes. Or now I have signed that paper. You know, just those things uh, don't mean anything. I mean, it's about the consciousness that we need to constantly develop. And every day there must be, it has to be some austerity involved it must be it has to be some tapasya involved otherwise i would say mm, scan your life and see where are we not putting enough energy or effort self-effort the great guru taught his disciples to avoid theoretical discussion of the scriptures he only is wise who devotes himself to realizing not reading only the ancient revelations. He said, solve all your problems through meditation. Exchange unprofitable religious speculations for actual God contact. Clear your mind of dogmatic theological debris. Let in the fresh healing waters of direct perception. Attune yourself to the active inner guidance. The divine voice has the answer to every dilemma of life. Though man's ingenuity for getting himself into trouble appears to be endless, the infinite sucker is no less resourceful. I love that last line. Though man's ingen ingenuity for getting himself into trouble seems to be endless. The infinite sucker is no less resourceful. That's, it's good to know, isn't it? We're, we're going to keep getting into trouble no matter what. We're going to keep making mistakes. We're going to keep fumbling and dropping the ball <clears throat> whenever the opportunity presents itself. But God as well is just endless in his ability to Lift us up, endless in his ability to support us during that process, endless in his resources to ensure that that fumble doesn't lead to a fall. And that's why it's not enough to read, it's not enough to know, it's not enough to quote. It's only enough to do, to meditate, to have that inner contact. There is no other solution. I wish there was. I really wish there was another solution. At least we have not found it yet. <laughs> well, okay, yeah. And uh, we've not searched everywhere, we have to admit that. But wherever we've searched, there have been dead ends. Except when you start to realize that until I don't feel him inside me, there's no way I'm ever going to realize that he's all around me. There's no way I'm going to see him in other people. There's just no way. Mentally, I can assume, oh, he's everywhere, he's in all atoms. But I don't act that way, do I? I don't live my life according to that mental concept. I still live it very much based on my own likes and dislikes. So, always a reminder. And Lahiri Mahashaya, as we said, was a no-nonsense type of fellow. Just either you meditate or you don't. Otherwise, don't come to me. Don't ask me these scriptural 
you know, explanations because they're not going to help you at all. Experience them inside and then you won't need any scriptural validation. I love this picture of Lahir Mahashaya here. It's the only picture that we have of him. And, you know, the two lines there. Disciple of Babaji and Guru of Sri Yuteshwar. I mean, it's so beautiful when the disciple becomes the guru. (laughs) (coughs) The master's omnipresence was demonstrated one day before a group of disciples who were listening to his exposition of the Bhagavad Gita. As he was explaining the meaning of Kutastha Chaitanya or the Christ consciousness in all vibratory creation, Lahiri Mahashaya suddenly gasped and cried out, I am drowning in the bodies of many souls off the coast of Japan. The next morning, the Chelas read a newspaper account of the death of many people whose ship had foundered the preceding day near Japan. The distant disciples of Lahiri Mahashaya were often made aware of his enfolding presence. I am ever with those who practice Kriya. He said consolingly to Chelas, who could not remain near him. I will guide you to the cosmic home through your enlarging perceptions. It's a very important line. I will guide you to your cosmic home through your enlarging perceptions. If your perceptions are not expanding and growing, I cannot guide you home. You know, I can help you find that parking spot when you need it. I can help you make sure that a little disharmony in your life can, you know, be overcome. I can help you in tiny little ways, but I can't bring you home until your own perceptions daily through your practices aren't growing, aren't becoming more than they were yesterday. Only through them can I guide you. It's like they can't plant their seeds in soil that's just not ready. Remember we talked about how Babaji was calling out Lahiri's name when he was walking through that forest. They can't call out, or they can call out our name, but we won't hear it. We won't know what our next steps are in direction of freedom until our own perceptions every day, daily, are enlarging, are increasing, are expanding. And also the importance here of... The power of practicing the techniques daily. I mean, I don't know if you have noticed or not already, but when we don't meditate daily, when we go through a period of time where we can really practice anything, I mean, we feel a little bit off tune, like like something is missing. Like, I know uh, who my guru is, I love him deeply, I'm part of many things, but I feel a little bit disconnected. It's a very subtle thing. And that's the link of the guru to practice the techniques that he has given to us. Because sometimes through that technique, through 10 minutes of Hongso, through five minutes of the Om technique, through one Kriya, through the practice of one Kriya, I, I have the power 
to just bring myself back to my connection with my own guru. So to practice the techniques daily, this is what gives us, you know, to be in the presence of the guru. So I would say if don't like, oh, I will meditate tomorrow or today I don't feel like practicing this. Well, perhaps through your Hongso, you know, Lahiri Mahashaya has something to tell you. Or perhaps through your own technique, Yogananda wants to enlarge your perception. So the practice of the techniques daily is vital for that connection with the Guru and attunement with the Guru. Swami Satyananda was told by a devotee that unable to go to Banaras, the man had nevertheless received precise Kriya initiation in a dream. Lahiri Mahashaya had appeared to instruct the Chela in answer to his prayers. If a disciple neglected any of his worldly obligations, the master would gently correct and discipline him. Yeah, it was a big a part one, of yeah, yeah. It was a big part of Lahiri Mahasaya's path. You know, nothing can be <laughs> neglected, not your contact with God, but also not the way through which that God contact needs to be expressed in your daily lives, in how you interact with people, in how you work, in where you go, in who you meet. Everything mattered. Everything was our opportunity to test out our divine connection. Otherwise, again, what's the point? What's the point of it all? Sit and meditate to do what? Where are you testing out your patience? Where are you testing out your love for God? Where are you testing out your awareness that God is the only reality? Not just with closed eyes. We can't have the entire world just sit down with their eyes closed. We've got to learn how through every action, every interaction, every word spoken, every thought, thunk, that's a word, we need to know, is my meditation working for me? Lahiri Mahashaya's words were mild and healing, even when he was forced to speak openly of a chela's faults, Sri Yukteswar once told me. He added ruefully, no disciple ever fled from our master's barbs. <laughs> I could not help laughing, but I truthfully assured Sri Yukteswar that sharp or not, his every word was music to my ears. <laughs> Sri Yukteswar was quite the opposite. Many disciples fled from him, but no disciple fled from Lahiri Mahasaya. Everybody, you know, he was always gentle, he was always mild. In many ways, Swamiji reminds me of that vibration, always gentle, always mild. Very, very, very few moments where Swami has ever felt the need to be strong, to raise his voice or to be strong with us. Otherwise, oh, I mean, I don't know. I don't think I've ever seen even a ruffle of a little bit of tension in his voice. I was thinking about the type of generational disciples that attract a specific guru. Mm. And I was thinking about Lahiri Mahashaya and his way of training disciples was just perfectly appropriated. Appropriated? Appropriate. Appropriate 
for their own personality, their own lifestyle. And I think there is a generational you know, movement of disciples that they attract a specific guru that is custom made for what they need and how they need to be trained. Because you see then later on, the disciples that Sri Yudeshwar attracted, I mean, they needed other kind of discipline, other kind of um, guidance. And even, you know, the disciples that Yogananda had, you know, they were also very unique and they needed to be also trained in different ways. So I was just contemplating no, that, that thought like each guru, you know, and, and the, the, the magnetism of the disciples at that particular time of the human evolution just attract the kind of discipline and, and way of being instructed. What do you think uh, we need? We need it, Swami Kriyananda, <laughs> for sure, and his ways. And yeah. I could use a little more discipline <laughs> in my life. I could use a little more Sri Yukteswar every now and then. <laughs> Lahiri Mahashaya carefully graded Kriya into four progressive initiations. He bestowed the three higher techniques only after the devotee had manifested definite spiritual progress. One day a certain chela convinced that his worth was not being duly evaluated gave voice to his discontent. Master, he said, surely I am ready now for the second initiation. At this moment the door opened to admit a humble disciple. Brinda Bhagat. He was a Banaras postman. Brinda, sit by me here. The great guru smiled at him affectionately. Tell me, are you ready for the second technique of Kriya? And the little postman folded his hands in supplication. Gurudev, he said in alarm. No more initiations, please. How can I assimilate any higher teachings? I have come today to ask your blessing because the first divine Kriya has filled me with such intoxication that I cannot deliver my letters. Already Brinda swims in the sea of spirit. At these words from Lahiri Mahashaya, his other disciple hung his head. Master, he said, I see I have been a poor work workman finding fault with my tools. This, this story is so instructional for many of us who, you know, there was always this time, okay, do you think I'm ready for my second Kriya? You know, for those of us who are already have been practicing our first Kriya for a while. And every time that question would pop into, you know, at that time in my mind, I'd be reminded of the story. It's like, mm, I don't think I'm swimming in the sea of spirit yet. And I don't think I'm filled with that much <coughs> intoxication yet that I'm unable to perform my daily activity. So the question was, mm, should I ask, you know, Nayaswami Jaya and see, will he give me the next Kriya or not? But of course, we can't all uh, always base our spiritual progress just on those experiences alone but yeah you could say that the kriya has done enough for me that i would like to deepen my own meditation 
further. And so we keep certain, you know, all right, that you're doing at least 108 Kriyas a day, so on and so forth. The best that we can do to try to ensure at least that people are maintaining a very disciplined and deep practice daily. We're going to move down just a little bit. They talk about Brinda a little bit over here, just how he became such a learned pundit in his own right. <clears throat> but we move on to, among many saints who received Kriya from Lahiri Mahashaya may be mentioned the illustrious Swami Vashkarananda Saraswati of Banaras, the Deogar ascetic of high stage stature, Balananda Brahmachari, and for a time, Lahiri Mahashaya served as private tutor to the son of Maharaja Ishwari Narayan Sinha Bahadur of Banaras. That's a long name. Recognizing the master's spiritual attainment, the Maharaja, as well as his son, sought Kriya initiation, as did the Maharaja Jyotindra Mohan Thakur. It's lovely to see over here just how many different people came to and we don't know anything about them because Lahiri Mahashaya was just so understated and just so, you know, not at all out there. So many great personalities of that time came to him, received initiation from him, had him tutoring the princes of the local kingdoms. It's just wonderful to kind of see Lahiri Mahashaya in that light because sometimes we don't, you know, sometimes we see him more as... Oh, the humble, simple householder yogi. And yeah, disciples came, but we think of the disciples more as just everyday people. But he had a magnetism that he really attracted very, very many great souls. Many of them we don't even know about. You know that it came out later on, I don't know quite well. And of course, many people dispute this. But that Lahari Mahashaya gave Kriya to Sai Baba of Shirdi. And when you think about it that way, whether that's entirely true or not, it doesn't even matter to a great degree. But when you think about it, you just think about how many were attracted. He didn't leave his home, you see. It wasn't like he was traveling around and saying, hey, you know, I've got this really amazing thing. Do you want to try it? No, he just sat in his home and people were drawn to him from all over the place. People we would never, ever even know came to receive Kriya from him. And it's a beautiful way to think of Lahiri Mahashaya because that's where he really started the revolution. We know Paramhans Yogananda took Kriya out into the world and before then, you know, 99.9% of the human population hadn't even heard about this word. But the moment the autobiography of the yogi came out, boom, everybody knows about it. Suddenly, Mahavtar Babaji is, you know, now a household name of sorts. Everybody's talking about him, but nobody knew him. But it was Lahiri Mahashaya really who started the revolution, but it was silent, it was unknown. And still today we won't quite know the ramifications of all those devotees and disciples that he had. A number of Lahiri Mahashaya's disciples were influential, with influential worldly position, were desirous of expanding the Kriya circle by publicity. The Guru refused his permission. One Chela, the royal physician to the Lord of Banaras, started an organized effort to spread the Master's name as Kashi Baba, exalted one of Banaras. Again, the Guru forbade it. You can see here just this little, you know, 
as disciples how we get, we get excited we're like you should do this for the guru and let's do that and let's make this happen i mean it's sweet and it's needed in many ways for the disciple to kind of feel that responsibility very in lehrimashaski i mean let's all figure out how to call lehrimashaya kashi baba you know it's like starting this whole campaign like today we can start facebook campaigns i wonder how what campaigns they were starting back then whispering in people's ears abhi se you know kashi baba bolenge and so on and so what's spreading little wildfires of rumor i love the fact that you know like he could already perhaps seen how it could be diluted if this could become too commercial or too like attracting just curious people i mean lahiri mm-hmm. mahashaya was only interested in those who wanted self realization and he wasn't interested in attracting the masses of people or people who wanted to see just the miracles or want you know he wanted real disciples who would be able to practice their kriya practice every day fulfilling their worldly responsibilities being householder yogis and and from that commitment really the mission would come we have spoken about this before in the previous classes but let's just keep reminding ourselves that lahiri mahashaya wasn't interested in just seekers and he didn't want just to be throwing pearls to the swines you know baba ji himself gave him a specific technique and he respected that very deeply he never compromised the sacredness that kriya had and and he tried to protect it almost from worldly people that wouldn't know what to do with it or wouldn't know how to even treat the energy and the vibrations surrounded the kriya yoga practice so he worked with very specific disciples and not only that he trained individually those disciples according to their karma their lifestyle their dedication and their tendencies so um, i just love <laughs> how he respected that and how put boundaries you know and and didn't really allow just curious people to come and start mingling and uh, you know playing with the kriya technique you had to have some sort of respect and real desire to transform yourself in order to receive and be in the presence of such a great master that he was we've said this before but we were like the sad part is many of us wouldn't have made the cut back then <laughs> yeah like, probably at least we kind of struggling in this we, we one we figured it <laughs> out you know like all right we'll wait till swami kriyananda comes in we'll slip in with him let the fragrance of the kriya flower be wafted naturally without any display its seeds he said will take root in the soil of spiritually fertile hearts although the master did not adopt the system of preaching through the modern medium of an organization 
or through the printing press, he knew that the power of his message would rise like a resistless flood, inundating by its own force the banks of human minds. The changed and purified lives of devotees were the simple guarantees of the deathless vitality of Kriya. Today that flood has come a little bit. Yeah, you know, there's just a lot more curious seekers. There's just a lot more noise in the spiritual world today. But that noise has built up to become a flood. And the flood isn't so much of everybody seeking God necessarily. But the flood is of everybody seeking an alternative. Everybody wants to change and transform the way they express their lives today. By, you know, all, there's nobody today that you can meet and he says, yeah, you know, I'm just really happy with who I am. <laughs> just like, I, just, I think I'm perfect. You know, I think there's just nothing to change here. Everybody feels a certain level of dissatisfaction, just this discomfort in our own skin exists. And I like this line over here, the changed and purified lives of devotees were the simple guarantees of the deathless vitality of Kriya. This is something Swamiji always spoke to us about. Let your own life be the example. Speak not to people of, oh, you know, you really need this meditation and you really let the purification and transformation that you've experienced, let that be the light that people see and say, wow, you know, what's this guy up to? I wonder what, what's helping and working for this person. And as devotees, that becomes such a great responsibility we all hold, to hold the energy of Kriya high in ourselves so that the power that it holds moves through us daily. That's the transformation we need to see. That's what will transform the world. Individuals being transformed, not systems, not societies, not communities, not an organization, an individual. Swamiji would say, if Ananda ever fails the individual, then Ananda has failed. And that was his always his concern. Mm -hmm. The platform exists, an organization, some structure has to exist that holds all of us together. But beyond that, the organization is meaningless. Once Ashanaya Swami asked Swamiji what the role of a spiritual director is. And, you know, at different times he's given different responses, but this one always struck me. And he said, the role of the spiritual director of any community or any center is to protect the individual from the organization. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's a good one. Because sometimes it gets like, what's needed here? What's more important here? And we forget that people need their individual transformation, not so much what a space needs. Oftentimes those things can go together, but every now and then they don't. And it's important for us to always be aware what's going to help a person in their journey. Where are we now? In 1886. In 1886, 25 years after his Rani Ket initiation, Lahiri Mahashaya was retired on a pension. With his availability in the daytime, disciples sought him out in ever-increasing numbers. So thus far, of course, he was only available after his work, only in the evening, and in order to be with his disciples longer, he forsake 
sleep entirely. So you could be with him from the evening all through the night until early morning and then he'd mm. continue on and go to office from that. But let's just bring this out even more strongly. Like 25 years wow. after he received that direct touch from Babaji, I mean, 25 years in the world, you know, like just fulfilling his responsibilities. 25 years are a lot of years <laughs> to be entangled with your family responsibilities, going to office <laughs> every day, taking a train, taking a rickshaw. I mean, I don't know what Varanasi was then, but, you know, he was for 25 years just interacting with the world daily. I mean, he was just a regular guy going to work every day for 25 years. And let's remember that he had <laughs> God realization and just he carried that consciousness, you know, to his daily worldly responsibilities. I mean, 25 years. So when we complain about not, you know, wanting to go to work after having a nice meditation or not wanting to, you know, broom the floor or not wanting to do something because we just feel a little bit, you know, uplifted by a nice kirtan we just had, let's just remember that this guy, Nahir Mahashaya, he was seven years in, seven days in Samadhi, and then he went back to the world, and for 25 years, he was present. He was right there with his children, with his wife, with his disciples, with his work. He was committed to become a perfect example of a householder yogi, and that's what it took from him meditating at night, practicing Kriya Yoga, helping other disciples, and then during the day, just being, you know, a normal, regular person. We get a little glimpse of like how his boss, you know, he saw him as ecstatic. It's like sometimes I think about the dynamic he must have had at office. Like who were his colleagues? Who was his boss? And what was they, what would they expect of them? How did they talk to him? You know, did they revere him or did they treat him as just a regular employee and even shout at him yeah. sometimes? Doesn't seem that way, but <laughs> I don't maybe, know. But you know, yeah. who knows what's going on there? Especially at that time, India was under British rule, so mm. all your superiors were, you know, Britishers, yeah. and the Indians were naturally—they were not given as many uh, roles of authority. So you've got, mm. you know, got that contention as well in play. Mm. <clears throat> the great Guru now sat in silence most of the time, locked in the tranquil lotus posture. He seldom left his little parlour, even for a walk or to visit other parts of the house. A quiet stream of chelas arrived almost ceaselessly for a darshan of the Guru. And I like the thing that he mentions just most of the time he was in silence. And that's the other aspect of a Guru-disciple relationship many of us uh, don't quite tune into. You know, we read here that Sri Yukteswar and Yogananda also had quite an interactive 
relationship, but even that's probably not entirely true, is just squeezed into one chapter and so it looks like a lot of stuff happened. But usually there's a lot of silence. Usually in our meditations when we're not hearing the Guru's voice, it's just there's a lot of silence. And the words that we do hear and read here, they're actually very like scarce. Every now and then something is dropped. Every now and then one little thing is told to the devotee. But the relationship with the true Guru always is developed inwardly in your heart, in inner silence. And that's very important for those of us who perhaps have in our you know, minds just this little thing of, I need a living Guru, I need somebody you know, who could constantly tell me what to do and is forever instructing me in every little thing. It just doesn't happen. That, there, that's not the point at all. I mean, you've got the world to tell you that. You've got your boss, you've got your wife, you've got your kids. They're telling you every day what to do. So you don't need any more of that. What you need is silence. And, and this, that's where the guru needs to speak to us. And through. this happens as well. I have noticed this. Like even with our own spiritual family, I have guru bhais here that I speak very little with, you know, and very hardly outward interaction but there is a, like a beautiful attunement that before that person says something to me or I'm thinking to say something to them somehow it just happens or or they do that and it's just such a beautiful way of living your life surrounded with people that you don't really need to interact with them as such a outward you know superficial superficial level where there is a inner communication constantly you think about them you see them around you just enjoy their presence so much but you don't need to constantly reinforce that outwardly but just it becomes this beautiful silent interaction and when each one of us learn to communicate in that way i think there would be many less misunderstandings mm. because it, it will come much more from the soul and less from the ego. It will become a little bit more spontaneous interaction and, and that's a way that for me personally I enjoy very much to interact with my spiritual family. Of course we have wonderful conversations and we laugh and there are moments for everything but what I enjoy the most is when I know I have a silent loving, supportive relationship with someone and and we, we understand each other and we don't demand outwardly from each other and we don't need to dis distract each other with unnecessary, you know, words that won't add anything except will bring us sometimes even a little bit off our center. So I think this could be a nice practice as well for all of us in the future to come. How can I keep refining my relationship especially with my spiritual family at a soul level where, where the communication starts happening even before we say or pronounce those words to the awe of all beholders Lahiri Mahashaya's habitual physiological state exhibited the superhuman features of breathlessness sleeplessness, cessation of pulse and heartbeat, calm eyes unblinking for hours, 
and a profound aura of peace. No visitor departed without upliftment of spirit. All knew that they had received the silent blessing of a true man of God. Paramahansa Yogananda in his lessons when he talks about how do you recognize a true guru, he talks about these um, outward kind of manifestations to look for as well. Especially he talks about calm eyes unblinking for hours. He talks about the ability to seize breath, heartbeat and pulse at will. So these are just some ways that you know the individual has mastery over his life force. That what he's sharing or she's sharing or whatever even instruction, however beautiful that they're giving, isn't intellectual alone, isn't just words, because words are easy. It is to know that the person is in fact a master. And this is the way to know that somebody is a master, is their life force is entirely under their control, can be directed to or away from any aspect of their body. Master himself, Paramahansa Yogananda, in the early days in America would have to kind of go around almost demonstrating some of these things because it was just so unheard of in the West where he would call people up to the stage and he would have them, you know, one and person the checking the pulse on one hand and one on the other and he'd stop it in one hand but keep it on the other or he'd increase it in one hand and slow it in the other and it was just, you know, it was a little bit entertaining for people at the time but those disciples who were his disciples scattered around the country they came one by one by one. When Yogananda went to the West to bring the teachings of Sanatana Dharma, and he, you know, we've read and we know accounts where halls were filled. People, were, you know, there were lines, they would say, just stretching out. Any hall was always filled to capacity, 5,000 people, 10,000 people, whatever it was. But one day when somebody looked at the hall and they were speaking to Yogananda, and he said, oh, look at this, you know, 5,000 people are here. And he said, well, we'll be lucky if even five really take on the teachings of self-realization because so he had to go around stirring the whole country mm -hmm. to pick out the one and the two and the three and the four here and there so he could then gather them back home and say all right now we're going to work and once he got those people and he says now we're going to work on this then he seized that outward travel seized kind of trying to go and uh, rile up the crowds but this is something, if you're looking for somebody or if you feel a relationship with somebody who claims to be your guru, you know, just, again, make sure, because it's important, as Yogananda said, do not surrender your will to somebody whose will is not anchored in God. And that's an important thing. Do not surrender your will to somebody whose will is not anchored in God. So let that just be a kind of awareness to hold if you're still searching for a spiritual path of your own. Well, I think the time has come, time has to come. put a period to this <laughs> chapter, at least. Uh, mm. I don't know if all of you know already, perhaps Don actually, next week 